We've been studying for the last few weeks about what it means to listen to the Lord and how to discern His voice and then to live in greater obedience to Him because we do hear His voice. And two weeks ago, we studied about the Lord's willingness to listen to us and how because of His example and and what He's done that we need to be really willing and always ready to listen to His Spirit. And then last week, we talked about six characteristics that help us understand when He is speaking, how we can recognize that it's Him. We know the enemy is very deceptive and loves to twist Scripture, so we talked last week about six ways to understand when God's speaking. If you weren't here or you didn't take notes or whatever, you can always listen to the podcast, go back and review it, just a way to be encouraged. Today we're going to look at two of the more extreme examples of God's leading. And what is reassuring to us at the outset is that um, it's hard to imagine that we could ever face anything this daunting or this demanding of our faith. God speaks all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. God continues to speak, as we've seen the last few weeks, uh, to us as believers. And um, He often gives us instruction that's difficult or challenging uh, to our faith. We all have challenges. Some of us in this room have greater challenges than others. It's not a contest. It's just the reality of it. Um, and some of us have difficulties that we're dealing with that, that are far worse than anything I've dealt with this week. But rarely is our faith tested like this. Rarely do we get a call that is so uh, far past what would seem normal uh, that we have to respond to it. And I think what encourages me as I look at both of these passages is to see the, the bold and hesitant and unwavering trust of these two men uh, really should stoke in us a very powerful resilience and, a, and, a, and a just a more fervent commitment uh, to listen to the Lord and obey Him uh, in whatever He leads us, however He leads us, whatever He calls us to. Uh, because sometimes when we hear from the Lord, um, it's far from easy. Some of you have been through things in the last year where you think, boy, last year at this time, I couldn't imagine what God was going to take me through, what God was going to allow in my life. And you've gotten through it, but it has not been easy. And sometimes it may have seemed beyond reasonable or beyond uh, rational. It's kind of at the, at the outer limits of, of what we can face or what we think we can handle. And, and maybe it seems uh, outlandish from our perspective. Maybe it seems unfair or illogical or unreasonable that, that God would allow that. And that is always a temptation that comes with that, uh, that we might want to resist Him or we might want to uh, not trust Him the way that He calls us to or, or maybe just ignore what He's saying. Maybe it'll go away. Uh, like my brother used to do when he was a little kid and my parents would would say something to discipline, and he just closes his eyes. Like, if I close my eyes, you'll go away, and you'll stop scolding me. Sometimes we do that with the Lord. We close our eyes and just kind of say, nope, not right now. I, I, I need to wait for something that will be something I can manage. But God doesn't always lead that way. God doesn't always speak to us this way. And I, and I wonder if those thoughts were, were ever in the minds of these two men, Noah and Abram, who became Abraham. These two men that heard a calling from the Lord that, 
that really was beyond the pale, that, w- that was just like, what? Wait, wait a second, what? You're asking me to do something that I can't fathom would be uh, within the scope of my understanding. And yet they listened to the Lord. But think about, and we know these, these accounts so, so well, but, but try to suspend that for a moment. Try to suspend all the, the images and the things you learned as a kid and the things you know about them and the times you've studied these. And, and just, just listen for a second. We'll read the text in a moment. But, but just listen to what was being said to these men. Build a boat as long as one and a half football fields. Fill it with your wife and kids and every kind of animal there is because the whole world's going to be flooded and you guys are going to be the only ones to survive. I'll give you the dimensions. Get started. Or leave your family and your friends in the only home you've ever known. Go to a place I'll tell you about later. I'll make a great nation out of you. I'll bless you. I'll make you known everywhere. In fact, you're going to bless all the families of the earth. And by the way, anybody who supports you, I'll support. Everybody who opposes you, I'll oppose. So start packing. I don't know about you, but, it, but I haven't gotten any communication from the Lord in the last week that requires that kind of trust or that kind of sacrifice. But what if we did? How would we respond That's a hard question for us to answer because we know the account so well and we know what these two men did. So so in our minds and in our desire, we probably say, well, if God had called me to that, I would would hope and I would think that that maybe I would have done what they did. At least I'd want to. I'd, I'd hope that I'd do that. But if we really infuse ourselves into the account, and we try to imagine what it was like for them to hear these words with, with absolutely no historical perspective, very little understanding of, of God, certainly not on the level that we understand it. We realize that their faith and their obedience is, is really stunning. So I want to read the passages this morning. We're going to read about 15 verses here. Uh, and then we're going to try to draw some applications for our lives. So it'll be very simple this morning. Um, but I just felt led that these were good passages for us to to study today in terms of understanding how the Lord leads. Chapter 6 of the book of Genesis. Sorry, I didn't tell you that maybe. Uh, Chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, start in verse 13. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top. And set the door of the ark on the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that's on the earth shall perish. But I'll establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind of the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds of their kind, the animals after their kind, every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come in to you to keep them alive. And for you, take for yourself some of all the food which is edible, gather it for yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Verse 22, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Turn over a few pages to chapter 12. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I shall show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I'll bless you, and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and to those who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Verse 4, so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, with all their possessions that they had accumulated, and the persons that they acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was there in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I'll give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev, which is the desert in Egypt. Now, most of us learned about these accounts as a kid. Most of us learned about Noah. And we have preconceived ideas, and it's not necessarily a negative statement, preconceived ideas in our head about what Noah looked like, what the ark looked like, how it flooded um, or floated, how all the happy animals were lined up on the deck, you know, just a couple giraffes and a lion or two. And I mean, you, you've seen the pictures, right? We got little figurines and everything else. But, but when we really think about, when we hear about the statistics of this project, um, we realize just how courageous Noah was to, to obey the voice of the Lord. If you stood the ark on its end, it would be as tall as a 45-story building. It seems to have taken anywhere from 80 to 100 years to build it, much of which Noah did by himself. He had to gather all the supplies, the wood, the nails, the pitch. He had to do all the blueprints, all the engineering plans, despite having no training or experience in any of that. And then he had to gather all the animals. And, and I forgot to mention, he was 500 when it started. He was 500 years old when it started. And then chapter 5, verse 32, tells us that when he started having kids and he discovered the local Toys R Us, um, that, that he started this work. That means that he had 12 to 15 years on a good estimate by himself, getting everything together, chopping the wood, creating the frame, doing the major construction, building the hull, uh, setting it all up by himself before his boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, could provide any real substantial help. He didn't really have family that we can perceive. His dad was in his 700s when the project started, so he probably wasn't providing strong labor. His father died about five years before the flood came, so, so there wasn't much help other than Noah. Noah was 600 when the flood started, so we can conclude that the ark took, at the very least, dozens of years to build, maybe as much as 75 to 80 years to build. But he did a lot of the initial work by himself while the boys matured and grew up. Now, about the time that Noah is starting to have babies in the house, the Lord looks at the world and he says, the, the world is intentionally evil. The world is wicked and it is, it is against me. People are rebellious. There's, there's nothing I see as I look out other than Noah and his family that is righteous. Now think about that. We live, we live in a bad time. We think there's evil in the world and there is. There's no question about it. 
But God looks around and he says, I can't find anybody that's righteous, anybody that has an interest in me other than Noah. So Noah's really by himself. And look at how it's described in chapter 6. Look at, look at the sins that God specifies about the world. He says they're emotionally shallow, they're relationally promiscuous, and every thought of their heart and mind is evil. They're emotionally shallow. They have no spiritual depth whatsoever, no spiritual interest whatsoever. Relationally, they do whatever they want. They follow their gut and, and their desires. There's no restraint, and every thought of their heart and mind is evil. So, so not only is Noah building a, a, a boat that's gigantic for a flood that almost seems incomprehensible, he's doing it within a culture that is literally completely depraved. There's no spiritual encouragement. There's nobody praying for him. There's nobody strengthening him. There's none of this. There's no praising God. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, within his culture that would be spiritually encouraging to him. So the opposition and the criticism as he's building this gigantic boat wouldn't have just been kind of joking po comments of people in passing. Hey, Noah, what you doing? Hey, nice boat, buddy. Good. Yeah, keep knock yourself out. It, it, it was not... Uh, funny. It was mocking and ridicule and cursing and nasty attacks. And he had to take it knowing that those very people were the ones that the Lord had to judge because there wasn't an ounce of morality. There wasn't an ounce of sorrow for sin. They were proudly defiant. But being righteous, Noah didn't build the ark with spite in his heart. He didn't laugh at them internally and go, yeah, I may be building a boat and I look foolish, but you're getting yours. Wait, just wait. You're mocking me now. You're cursing me now. Just wait. Because when the rains come, the door is going to be shut. And I'm not letting you in. And you know what? You're going to get what you deserve. There was none of that. Well, how do we know that? Because he was righteous. And when we're righteous, we don't ridicule the lost. We're broken for the lost. When we're righteous, we don't say, look at the evil in the world. That person's got a special place in hell. I know I've used that phrase a couple times over my life, and it's wrong. We don't want anybody to go to hell. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So why would we say, good, you're going to be going to hell? We want to rescue the perishing. We want to rescue, as Jude says, anyone who's got one foot in the fire already. Our job is to pull them out and to show them the love of Christ. So, so Noah wasn't proud, and he wasn't looking around going, yeah, that's fine. You guys can mock all you want. You're wicked. God's going to punish you. And listen, if God did this, God's about to take the final step of judging sin, and there's not going to be any recourse after What's going on in the world right now, we're seeing the final days. We're seeing God preparing to judge sin because man has gotten so defiant and so resistant to him. And there's no arrogance in being redeemed. There's no, there's no pride in being promised salvation because we didn't secure it for ourselves. It's only through Christ. So we can't walk around going, look at me. I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. What about you? That, that attitude pervades the Christian church, and it, it disturbs me. There's no arrogance. I'm nothing without Christ. You're nothing without Christ. If there's no cross, there's no eternity. Only eternity in hell. 
So we have to go about with a broken spirit for people who are dying. As Noah built the ark and as he was ridiculed, his heart was broken. Broken for the people that he knew would not survive. And then there was the personal cost. Everything was against doing this. The science against a worldwide flood, the logic of building a boat this size, the unbelievable peer pressure, the nonstop ridicule, being a social outcast, not having any friends. And then it struck me this week, the inconvenience of occupying many decades of his life and building this boat and starting from scratch and starting by himself. And he's an old man. He doesn't get any help at first. And everything he's doing is completely counterculture. And here's the thing. He had no proof that he was supposed to do this other than God's word. That was it. God had said it. There was no fallback. There was no writing in the sky. There were no people to come around him and say, look, Noah, we have been praying, and God has put it on our heart that this is the right thing to do, and we're rejoicing. Let, let's, let's get together and praise him and study his word because we know you're on the right track, Noah. This is going to be awesome. God is going to... There was none of that. Every day he gets up. Sarai's with the babies, and they're crying, and she's taking care of them. And he walks out every morning, and he's got the boards, and he's got the nails, and he's got the pitch. And he starts hammering, boom, 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 boom. And people are walking by, criticizing him, ridiculing him, cursing him, telling him he's an idiot, mocking him in every single way. Boom, 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 boom. Day after day after day after day for 70 or 80 years. And the only thing he has in his heart is God told me to do this. Do we trust the word of God that much? Are we willing to obey, listen now, simply because the Bible said so? No matter how unpopular, how difficult, how non-PC, no matter how much our self screams that it's unreasonable and it's unfair and it's cramping our style and it's not convenient and it's hard to be set apart, no, no matter how much our mind screams that, do we obey because it says this is God's word? Because that's what Noah did. And with all that in mind, look back at verse 22. It says, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Notice that there is zero hesitation whatsoever in doing what the Lord calls him to do, even though it is completely foreign and seems logically ridiculous. In fact, the Holy Spirit says twice that Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him, as if he's kind of emphasizing this is not some shallow situational obedience seem like the right thing to do. This is ingrained in his faith and his consecration to the Lord. God says, build a boat, and Noah says, I'll start right now. He did it. All that the God had commanded him, he did it. The Holy Spirit puts bookends there on verse 22 to say, this is how strong his obedience was. Now turn over to chapter 12 for a minute again, where we see Abram receiving a similar calling, but this one has different implications. We see in chapter 11 that the world had just experienced confusion and judgment again. 
because man didn't learn his lesson, the world was flooded, everybody died, Noah and his children repopulated the world, the world started to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and again, man doesn't remember the lessons, he just starts to get proud again, and everybody decides to get together and build a tower to heaven so that they can usurp God. We'll build a tower, the tower will go into heaven, that will show that we're God, we don't need God. Well, what about the flood? Nah, that was, that's, that's a story, that, that never happened, come on, God didn't wipe out the world. You know what, we can be God. And God looks at this and he says, well, I promised I wouldn't flood the earth again. So instead of doing that, he creates multiple languages because chapter 11, verse 1 says everybody spoke the same language. So he confuses the people and divides them so they'll stop building. But the depravity still exists. And the clear implication from the text is that, again, there are very few righteous people on the earth. In fact, as I was studying chapter 11 and looking at that genealogy listing, which many times we get into the genealogy and we're like, I'm going to skip that chapter today because I can't pronounce any of those words. But the genealogy is important because I think what the Lord is telling us there is there, there maybe was only one real family line that consistently followed the Lord because chapter 11 says everybody went to Babel. Everybody wanted to build the tower. The whole earth, again, had become resistant to God. But there's this one family. And as chapter 12 begins, the focus is on Abram and the plans that God has for him. And said, In fact, he says to Abram, you're going to be the patriarch of my nation. But to do this, like Noah, you're going to have to radically have your plans changed. Abram, you come from a great family. Not many people on the earth worship me. And I have plans for you. The plans are going to require that you leave everything and everybody that you know, that you go to a foreign place that I'm not going to specify yet, that you face all kinds of opposition, and you pay a personal cost. And and here's how I'm going to prove this to you. The only assurance you have as you trust me, see if this sounds familiar, is that I'm giving you my word. The only thing you'll be able to fall back on is that I said I will lead you. Now, there were a couple other obstacles to Abram's calling. He and his wife couldn't have children. So when you look back at chapter 12, verse 2, that's kind of an unusual promise. And to ultimately get to where they were going, we've got a map for this, if you don't mind putting that up. To ultimately get to where they were going, required a 1,065-mile walk. To give that perspective, and I love the internet for this, that's like walking from Milwaukee to Orlando. I don't know if you've ever driven Milwaukee to Orlando. I have. It's a long way. 25, 26 hours by car going 70. Or 80 if you drive like John Corvalin. So imagine walking. You set out today. We're going to walk to Orlando. I don't even want to walk to Kenosha. Kids, we're going to Disney. Great, Dad, we get on a plane. No, we're walking. We're walking. It'll be good. We'll get there in about six months. So you see, 1,065 miles. And we got um, inserts in the back if you want one after the service on the table. So, so. So his wife can't have kids, but God says, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and and I'm going to lead you to a land. You're going to end up walking a 1,000 miles. 
Not to mention the negative implications for his family because they're going to be on the move and there's no Marriott, there's no Chipotle, there's nowhere to stop, there's nowhere to eat. This is just them. Everything about this would be hard. Now, like Noah, the logic says, ignore what God's saying. This is ridiculous. This is outlandish. This is, this is beyond comprehension that God would ask us to do this. And then I've got to believe that you're going to make a great nation out of me, and that nation's going to be blessed. Who am I? Why would the Lord do this? Why would the Lord choose me? Why not just create a nation? I mean, come on. You can do anything. Just create it. The world's depraved. The world's arrogant. Why not just overcome that, Lord, by creating a nation? Why do I have to walk a thousand miles to get to where I need to go so you can put me in the land? And I'm sure as he walked from Milwaukee to Orlando, a lot of those reasons were rolling through his mind. Why would I listen to the Lord? Listen, when the Lord gives his word, how many know we should obey it eagerly? Eagerly, not just, oh, man, really? Whether it's God's clear word from Scripture or whether it's what we learned from the Holy Spirit as we studied last week, whatever method the Lord is using to teach us, we need to hear it, accept it, and obey it. And that may have implications for our life or for career or our family or our lifestyle. It may have implications on our church or programming or convenience. But, but to not obey or trust when God gives us his word would be disobedient. That's why we have to listen. And Noah and Abram listened. But to listen, we have to reconcile some questions in our heart and mind. Because unless we can answer the questions I'm going to give you with an, with an unwavering, yes, absolutely, Lord. I mean, unless we can do that... There will be hesitation in our receptivity and will ultimately be disobedient. If, if when God moves, we can't say, Lord, yes, whatever, whatever you call me to, I'll do it. And that's not easy. But unless that's our response, we'll waver. So what are the five questions that we have to reconcile? Let me give them to you real quick. Number one, do I trust that he is God and Lord? Do I trust that he is God and Lord, that there is nothing out of his control, and that he completely knows what he's doing? Do I trust that he is God and Lord? Second, do I trust that he has a perfect purpose for me, that this is not random, that what he allowed you to go through or what he's going to allow you to go through is not just some random act of the universe or the cosmos, that it's intentional and it's because he has a purpose for you. Number three, do I trust that he will provide exceedingly abundant above all that I ask or think? Do I trust that? Do I really believe that God's provision is perfect and wonderful? Number four, am I confident that his perfect love casts out all fear? Am I confident that his perfect love casts out all fear? And number five, do I recognize that this calling is designed to bring him glory? Do I recognize that this calling is designed to bring him glory and that I'm supposed to joyfully declare his name because of it? Now, being confident in those five facts will offset the tendency that we have to ask, why me 
and why this? When we are confident, when we can say, yes, Lord, you are God and Lord. Yes, Lord, I do trust that you have a purpose. Yes, Lord, you will provide exceedingly abundantly the that I ask or think, and you will cast out the fear, and yes, I'm going to bring you glory because of this. When we can say that, it will cut into the doubt. And we may not always understand what the Lord's doing at the moment because His ways are not our ways and His ways are far greater than ours. But that doesn't mean we aren't called to do them. A lack of understanding is never an excuse for disobedience. A lack of understanding is never an excuse for disobedience. We either need to pray more or we need to rest in His wisdom and His provision. And we need to understand that when He leads us the way He does, He clearly wants us to understand that He has chosen us for that time, for that purpose, to fulfill His will. And there may be a lot of reasons why He does that. Maybe... Well, ideally, actually, it would be because of the reason that he called Noah. Because we're living righteously and we're going to represent him well. Wouldn't it be awesome that if everything God does by his purpose is because he looks at our lives and says, that person is righteous, that person loves me, that person is holy and set apart, and their faith is just off the charts. So I'm going to use them, I'm going to, I'm going to call them because they'll represent me well. Or sometimes God calls us into a situation because the people around us need to see our faith. People that don't know him or people that are struggling in their walk need to see our commitment and our discipline for him. Or maybe he just wants to stretch our faith. There's no greater expression of our love and our gratitude to God than our faith. It's how we got saved because of the grace of God. It's what proves we're not living for ourselves so the Lord is constantly exercising it. And if we're not going to exercise it ourselves, he's going to exercise it. But listen, he will never stretch our faith to the, uh, beyond the edge of what he can help us with. Sometimes it seems that, that it's impossible for us and, it, and it's gone past. It's certainly well past comfortable. But he knows what to do. He knows what is required for our spiritual maturity. But here's what hit me last night. I, I thought I knew exactly where I was going with this message. And then God revealed something to me last night as I was driving my car. He says, listen, having your faith stretched isn't necessarily negative. A lot of times, well, the Lord's really stretching my faith right now. Boy, I'm really going through a trial, and, and God's really just, just working on me. And my faith, I've used the phrase many times over the years. God's, God's stretching your faith. God's taking you to a higher level of faith right now, and, and you need to trust him. And I don't mean that trite words. That's the reality. God's, God's taking you to the next level. He wants to mold you and shape you just like a potter does. But listen, having our faith stretched isn't necessarily negative. Building an ark by ourselves for 75 years while people are cursing us every day is not a picnic. Leaving everything you know and going to a strange place to, to, to experience a seemingly incomprehensible promise just, just kind of requires real vision. I mean, to, to say, just leave and, and go and, and, and I'll take care of the rest. But it can also be wonderful. So wonderful that 6,000 years later, we're studying these men's lives as an example of people that heard and obeyed, even when it was extreme. 
See, we have to train ourselves, and I really believe the Lord's giving us this message this morning. We have to train ourselves to understand that when the Lord pulls our faith to the limit, that the blessing that's going to come is as extreme as the test. The farther God stretches your faith, the bigger the blessing is that he wants to put on our lives. So, Noah is building a huge boat for a rainstorm that's a century away. Think about that. Noah's building a boat for a storm that's a hundred years away, but he's also going to be delivered from God's punishment of sin. Abraham has to walk a thousand miles into the unknown, but when he gets there, he's going to be a great nation, and he's going to have God as his Lord. And, and, and while he couldn't be a dad at first, he's now going to be the father of hundreds of millions of people. God stretched their faith. God pushed them out to the extreme, but his blessing was there. Now, the same truth, and I close with this, the same truth applies to us as believers because how many know that we worship the same God? God is unchanging. God is immutable. He hasn't changed from Noah and Abram's times. He's not different. He doesn't function differently. He still has the same, uh, same provision that he had then. So I thought about this in the context of our own church. We don't have a permanent building. But he has a plan for us that we can't see yet. He has a place for us that will be permanent where we can worship him and do ministry and we don't have to unplug wires every week. I don't know when it's coming, but he's got a plan. He's called us to do a weekly prayer meeting, but we're going to have to move some ministry around and we're going to have to get a lot more volunteers to serve with kids. But how many know that he'll bless us because we're spending more time in his presence? How many know that he'll say, look, you're gathering together to, to call on my name and to worship me? I'll take care of your needs. Listen, if he could do it for Noah and Abram, can't he do it for our prayer meeting? Build a boat 450 feet long and wait 100 years for the rain? Go, go and leave. Go, just go, just go, just go, just go, just go. I'll show you. I'll show you a thousand miles away, but just go. It's good. I'll make a nation. You need a building? I can take care of that. You're going to have a prayer meeting? You need volunteers? I can take care of that. You got personal challenges that are coming up that, that, that are going to be difficult, and we don't understand why or how they're going to be resolved. Uh, you know what? If you trust in me and you're unwavering in your obedience, I'll provide. I'll provide. You don't think I can do that? Listen, you and I have a unique opportunity to respond to the Lord's leading, and we have the opportunity to set an example of obedience. Because at the end of the day, wouldn't it be wonderful it could, if it could be said of us, that person did according to all that God commanded them, so they did. That, that church, Harbor Rock Tabernacle, they did according to all that the Lord commanded them, so they did. And they went forth as the Lord had spoken to them. Don't you want that said of you? I want that said of me. Rhodes, oh, he did according to all that God commanded him. And he went forth as the Lord set his way. And, and, and he was obedient to that. What would bring more honor to our Lord than that? What would bring more joy to Jesus Christ who died and rose again that he would look on us and see that kind of faith? 
I don't know what God's going to call me to. I don't know what God's going to call you to. I don't know what God's going to call this church to. But when he calls, it can't be as extreme as this.